0: Good afternoon, good evening, whenever or wherever in the world you're tuning in from. My name is David Nash and together we're celebrating 10 years of UNFD, a cornerstone of Australia's heavy music scene, by diving deep into the stories behind just some of the records that made the label what it is today. In case you haven't gotten amongst it, throughout 2021, the legends at UNFD have been re-releasing some of the classic records from their back catalogue on limited edition collector's vinyl. So far... The collection has given us classic albums and EPs from local legends like In Hearts Wake, Hellions, Dream on Dreamer, Thornhill and Ocean Grove, as well as international icons like Stray from the Path and Dream State. It's hard to believe that in just a few more weeks, we'll be saying farewell to one of the most chaotic years in recent history. It's been one hell of a ride. But of course, 2021 isn't over just yet. And to wrap things up on a special note, UNFD have not one, but two epic re-releases left in the bag for December. The first of those two comes from one of the bands that helped to build the very foundation on which UNFD stands. They're the band that many of us would consider to be the forefathers of Australian metalcore, I Killed the Prom Queen, for the mighty ninth installment in UNFD's 10-year anniversary vinyl series, I Killed the Prom Queen are re-releasing their career-defining second album, 2006's Music for the Recently Deceased. To call it a classic would be the understatement of a lifetime. This is the album that kickstarted a revolution in Australia's heavy music scene, and the story behind it is so goddamn mental. We've had to do this episode in two parts. The first begins in the summer of 2000 with I Killed the Prom Queen rising from the ashes of several long-since-defunct hardcore bands from the suburbs of southern Adelaide. Tying it all together was drummer J.J. Peters, who nowadays you'll know as the frontman of D's Nuts. With a gut feeling that Prom Queen was missing its miters touch, J.J. set out to convince an old high school mate, Jonah Weinhoffen, to join the band as its second guitarist. The move paid off in spades with Jonah going on to be the last founding member of the band to stick around by the end. And then there's Michael Crafter, a controversial bloke, no doubt, but an undeniable legend in his own right. Believe it or not, though, Crafter joined Prom Queen almost by accident. At first, he was just a fly on the wall, hanging around at the jam sessions and shooting the shit as nothing more than a mate. But then at one fateful rehearsal, Crafter picked up a mic and started going ham. And as they say, the rest is history. Those first few years of Prom Queen weren't anything to write home about. They played covers of bands like Earth Crisis, Mind Snare, and Hate Bread, and only started writing their own songs when they discovered metalcore pioneers like Poison the Well and In Flames, or as Crafter puts it, that metal-influenced Florida fucking emo screamo stuff. It took a while for Prom Queen to figure out what they wanted to sound like and for their formative years, they weren't thinking too hard about chiseling out any kind of game-changing sound of their own. Jonas says they just wanted to play like all the bands they were listening to at the time, kind of like a roundabout tribute act sort of thing. But luckily for them, that sound, big, chunky metalcore with a tight, melodic edge, was still relatively new to Australia. They figured they were just riding the wave, but in fact, they were bringing the wave itself to Australia like no band had before them. But while they're looked upon now as champions of the scene, Prom Queen were initially seen as the outcasts. As Crafter puts it, everyone else was in a tough guy, hardcore band and Prom Queen were the pretty boys that stuck out like five sore thumbs with emo haircuts. Their determination paid off though. And after years of brutal, non-stop hustling, Prom Queen made a name for themselves as one of the most exciting bands in Australian metal. 2003 saw them drop their debut album when goodbye means forever within a matter of months the band had skyrocketed from dive bars and PCYCs to some of australia's most beloved venues and they were an even bigger hit overseas racking up lucrative tour ops in us uk and europe according to crafter prom queen managed to fit 10 years of being a band into six months It's at this point in the story that we need to talk about the secret weapon to Prom Queen's breakthrough, the one and only Sean Kennedy. Sean joined as the band's third bassist in 2003, and at first, he was a little bit on the shy side. He was initially hesitant to bring anything of his own to the table, but when the band eventually did convince him to chuck out an idea, what they got was the seed that grew into one of their most jaw-droppingly insane songs to date, Sharks In Your Mouth. A thrashy, riff-driven banger of a tune, Sharks In Your Mouth wound up being the first song written for album number two and pretty much shaped the entire direction for that record. Galvanized by their early success and with a clear direction for the future of prom queen, the band headed to Sweden to record with legendary producer Fredrik Nordström. Frederick came into the picture in an unconventional way. The band knew about him from the liner notes of their own favourite albums, but he was already a household name in heavy music. Prom Queen didn't even think they'd be able to get a hold of him, let alone pin him down to produce their album. But yet again, luck was on their side, scoring the green light to work with Fred through, believe it or not, an email that Jonas sent him on a whim containing a digital copy of When Goodbye Means Forever. It was the middle of 2005 and Prom Queen had firmly established themselves as one of the most crucial names in Australian metal. Naturally, this is where the story gets a little muddy. Pressure started to mount within the band. Their contemporaries, Parkway Drive, were just about to drop Killing with a Smile. They were also doing gangbusters in America, so there was a lot of pressure on Prom Queen to match the hype. After all, Prom Queen had already planted themselves as the band to watch in the versioning metalcore scene of the 2000s. Music for the recently deceased needed to be that big knockout punch that would make them bona fide legends. Though he'd always had a bit of an ego to him, that pressure started to weigh heavily on Crafter's mind. He started to doubt his future in the music industry, and although Prom Queen did in fact power through that pressure and crank out a masterpiece... Crafter was too far gone. Coupled with the turbulence of that grinding road dog lifestyle, his rapidly fizzling mental health and a flourishing relationship to juggle, Crafter found that he'd run his course with Prom Queen and be the first to admit it. Hell, he was the first to admit it, as you'll find in our interview. He just couldn't put the effort into the band anymore. So following one particularly contentious tour of the US, right off the back of a UK tour, which itself came right off the back of their recording session in Sweden, Crafter was officially fired from I Killed the Prom Queen. The band replaced him with Ed Butcher, a young gun from the UK that they'd poached from another up-and-coming band to hunt for Ida Wave. With Ed in tow, Prom Queen re-recorded the entirety of music for the recently deceased, keeping the bare bones of the record they'd made with Crafter, but whipping up some new muscles to wrap around them. In the first half of our interview, Jonah and Crafter chat about how Prom Queen got to that point and what music for the recently deceased looked like from behind the scenes as it started to take shape. Let's jump to it, shall we? (laughs) It is now time to meet our guests on this podcast. Would you please introduce yourselves? My name is Michael Crafter.
1: I, at one point, was in Ike of the Prom Queen. (laughs)
2: And uh, you also got Jonah Weinhoffen here, who I was also, I guess, most of the time in. I killed the prom queen.
0: Were you two there for the first ever jam session? You wouldn't, you probably wouldn't have had a band name yet. But were you two there? I wasn't. <laughs> he
2: was. Well, kinda, kinda not. So the the band came about in a weird way, where actually both of us weren't even really the original members in in the band. Um, It was a couple old, old down South hardcore bands from like Victor Harbor and like Southern suburbs of Adelaide area that wanted to form a new band. And they enlisted the help of our mate JJ Peters, um, who we both went to high school with and had kind of played music with through high school. And JJ kind of strong armed them into getting me in the band because they needed another guitar player. And then we jammed a bunch of songs with those guys for a while. And then we had a, uh, there was two vocalists at the time. And I guess, you know, we we were all just kind of keeping in touch with Crafter and it was looking like one of the vocalists wasn't going to be able to do it full time or, you know, wasn't as interested in playing as shows as frequently as we wanted to. And, you know, Crafter being a mate of ours, we kind of, somehow Crafter just kind of ended up hanging out at rehearsals and then slowly like three or four rehearsals later, just, picked up the mic just randomly and that, that was it like so Cra- crafter and i both weren't original members in the lineup that became michael the prom queen but the name and the conception and like that early lineup kind of all came about with the addition of michael and then myself it was actually crafter's idea to call the band that came in with a short list of Funky, too many word names one day. It all sounded very <laughs> poetic and late 90s screamer. Like
1: but now I look back and go, fuck, it would have been so much easier. Just prom queen, and that was it. <laughs> but
0: is Jonah right in so, saying that you hadn't really ever sung?
1: Nah, so me me, and Jonah had a band before this called The Fall of Troy. Then we had a band called Another's Life. So we we're all kind of around each other. JJ had a like Nirvana y silver chair kind of band and Jonah was in that at one point and so there was that but we were all real close we all went to school together and it kind of like when it's like those music circles well there's not many people into that type of music so we all kind of just ended up together it was like at one point we were just a lot we were all kind of loosely friends and then we're all like oh we're all into the same shit so then me jonah some other friends from our hometown and/or the, the, my hometown. He, he moved there when he was younger. It's called Uldenga. We all started jamming in his shed in like the most hottest conditions ever. And we literally, at first, all we played was Earth Crisis and it was like Mind Snare songs I hate, and stuff. Yeah, Mind
2: Snare covers, Hate Breed covers.
1: Yeah. And then we just tried to be a band and that kind of fizzled. And then it was kind of like they were starting the what uh, what it what it was at the time and then somehow i ended up in it and it was kind of like one of those things where we weren't we wanted to all do a band but everyone else that was kind of in the band as time went on in that early years were kind of a little bit more grown up than we were we're all in our early 20s but they wanted jobs and Yeah, girlfriends and and like a real life, you know, like they've all like gone on to have kids and stuff like that. But we were like, oh, we just want to play shows and go hang in Melbourne. And that's literally like kind of how the lineup kind of changed over time. People just grew up, so to speak, a little faster than we did, but we wanted to be in a band and it worked out. But at the time, we're it was crazy to think we were trying because everyone else was like, oh, I'm going to get a job. And. I'm going to do this and I'm going to get married. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, okay, fuck.
2: We were the opposite. We we're like, yeah. how can we quit our job and go on to. Um...
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. How can we quit whatever shit jobs we had? And I don't like... want
2: to do fruit and veg anymore or pick bok choy.
1: Did this yeah, sound come terrible. easily? To be, be honest, at the time, me and Joanna got so obsessed with Poison the Well. There was this period where we were just like, oh my God, everything needs to sound like Poison the Well. So the previous band sounded kind of like Poison the Well. Then the starter prom queen kind of sounded a bit like that—that that metal influence, Florida fucking emo screamo stuff. And then as time went on, we just wanted to be heavier, so it kind of just evolved into what the real metal sound was. But I, I feel like the metal sound kind of didn't really like the like what what the what the band sounds like now didn't really come until we started to listen to like the Unearths and and soilworks and in flames and stuff like that and then we were like oh this is what we want to sound like.
0: I noticed you mentioned two Swedish bands. I'm going to come back to the the Swedish influence in a few questions time. So, did any of these early jam sessions make some sort of demo recording?
2: Yeah, I mean, we used to record just crap demos to cassette all the time and you know, they're not definitely nothing worth releasing, but we just wanted to see where we're at and like hear it back and track our own progress and just going back to your previous question I I wanted to kind of let you in on a bit of a hack that you know it was a bit of a stroke of luck on our part just as far as the success of the band and whatnot but we were probably like almost any other band starting out where we were just listening to our favorite bands and we just wanted to sound like that we weren't we were so young that we weren't like thinking in the mindset that we're like pro-level songwriters or we need to have this very unique sound we, we were teenagers early 20s and we just wanted to play music that sounded like the bands we loved and we just happened to find a sound and a style that was very very brand new to Australia at the time so you know there was there was a bunch of bands doing it in Europe there's a lot of like early metalcore bands in Europe and then it kind of took by storm in the U.S. with you know bands like Killswitch and on Earth, as we just kind of were really lucky we got in early and started to ride that wave and kind of solidified ourselves in the Aussie scene with that sound.
0: So do you accept the tag of predecessors of metalcore in Australia?
1: I think, but, but like at the time, what can we really think that was doing the same kind of stuff? Like, honestly, at that time, we felt like we were the only band doing that style or like, fast riffs and breakdowns and stuff like that and then influenced by whatever it was hate breed or poison the Well or in flames or whatever but at the time we were like we were kind of the outcast because everyone else was in a tough guy hardcore band and we were kind of labeled as these pretty boys playing metal and it kind of was looked at nearly kind of like we'd go to sydney and stuff and kind of feel like at these hardcore festivals and stuff like we were the outcast bands doing our own kind of thing
0: so were you not welcomed within
2: that music scene at all
1: what do you think jonah i i just (laughs) always had that perception that we weren't
2: i think it wasn't that we weren't it wasn't that like the the people we were playing to and like the people we met that were our peers in the scene were unwelcoming like they weren't hostile it's just that the the people at shows weren't used to that sound you know we played hardcore whatever it was 2002 the resist festival and it was like all straight up hardcore and like crucial bands and then you know maybe us and one other band that kind of was a bit more melodic or metalcore or you know had that kind of sound and so people weren't used to it yet you know what i mean it was maybe unusual i I don't want to say brand new or anything like that because we've went for sure not the first band to do it but maybe definitely like on the earlier side in, in Australia so yeah I, I remember there being like an awkwardness at shows where we were like well that went down bad but as time went on people kind of started to get it you know what I mean and then it became more accepted and then we obviously be- became more popular as a band
0: when when goodbye means forever comes out in 2003 would you say you were still operating then as an underground band Oh, yeah, I reckon.
1: I, I We went out, we went out I was, as our uh, first tour off that album, we went out on a support tour for Give Up The Ghost. So the album had come out in uh, December or something. I think by January or February, we were out with Give Up The Ghost. And they, even then, we kind of was like, that wasn't really our crowd either. We hadn't really, I kind of felt like we, we were kind of nearly too scared just to, pull the trigger and just be a touring band by ourselves but we're also trying to take up these opportunities of where we're trying to get in front of more faces and kind of maybe win some people over i,
2: I think the first real tour that we went on was probably before when goodbye came out and it was it was at a time where you know maybe graham at resist was booking a couple tours here and there, or like Bromwan and the early destroyer lines crew but we we just didn't have those connections yet really and so we teamed up with shot point blank who were all super close mates of ours another adelaide band and we just kind of made a tour on our own somehow i don't i'm sure crafter probably had more of a hand in it than i did at that time because he was very hands-on with like networking and you know like tapping friends everywhere and just lining up shows which was awesome for the band in those early years so yeah you kind of just i remember having to just do it ourselves because no one was there to do it for you you know it's not like today where a band gets signed to a manager and a booking agent and a label and it's all good it just it it wasn't big then in in australia so yeah i do remember those times when goodbye coming out and us just kind of lapping up every support we could get because it was just gonna like you said gonna get us in front of more people we were still like you know super in promo mode we're like a, a brand new band first album. I think a little while later, once that album had been out for a while, you know, it kind of set in and, and that began to elevate us again to kind of that next level. But it took a while.
0: Was there a conscious effort where you guys said, we need to make a shift here if we're going to take that next step?
1: I I, I think there was, and I don't know if Jonah would agree, but I think there was a point where when Parkway kind of came along and obviously we, we had a big significance in helping that that time because when I went to Byron Bay when I met all those guys I felt like we had some a band finally kind of in common with us and so we went that was like that before when God by means forever out, us and Parkway went out on a split CD tour at the time we didn't go to Sydney because we felt so outcasted by Sydney that we felt that no one was going to show up because the time previous we went to Sydney, there was like 80 payers. So it was like this weird tour where before it was probably six months because we did the Prom Queen Parkway split. We probably, yeah, we did the Point Blank tour and then then we went out and us and Parkway did something after and then that's kind of when we were recording and things like that. But it was kind of like then we had someone that was kind of like, Along uh, along the same path, and maybe it, it maybe it, may it was a, it becomes then a competitive thing or whatever. But we at the time were like, we're going to be a proper band, and we're not only going to tour Australia, but we're going to tour the states. And that's kind of like that first period of the first probably three or four months of when Goodbye Means Forever came out. We did like the Give Up the Ghost tour, then Us Parkway and Evergreen Terrace went out. And then all of a sudden we had the ability to go to America. So it was like, it feels like we fit about 10 years of a band into like fucking six months because we just did so fucking much. It was crazy. And then at some point in between there, we toured with Boy Sets Fire and I don't even know when that was. (laughs) (laughs) Like It's crazy. It's crazy to think that we're now that like sitting back going, fuck, we fit in a lot fast and it's like, It's crazy also how much time's gone past since then.
0: Could that have been to the band's detriment? Too much, too fast? No, never. No, back then.
2: We we needed more, if anything. At that time, you you couldn't play anywhere in Australia on a Monday or a Tuesday or a Wednesday night. And, you know, we were doing tours and it would be like a month or a two-month long tour, but really it was only like Thursday, Friday, Saturday or Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then you'd be kicking around at your mate's place for three days in some random city um i remember too doing a tour right before we went to the u.s um which was with evergreen terrace we kind of did a handshake deal with them where you know we were at that time starting to be a strong support band in oz and they agreed to bring us out in the u.s if we were like their direct support in australia so that was as crafter said that was like really kind of the next level again for us and we did a tour we called when goodbye means we're off to america tour (laughs) and we knew we needed to um to fundraise because in the states, like we were getting paid like fifty to a hundred dollars a show, and that was it. And we had to pay our own way there. We had to basically sneak into the country. We had to like do everything ourselves. Buy a van and borrow gear, find cheap crap gear. So fortunately, at that time, like we were just starting to see a bit of success in Oz and you know, like making a little bit of money, not to the point where we were paying ourselves a wage or anything, but we, we basically did a big successful Australian tour to then fund the next step, which was the U S touring.
0: So whose idea was it to go to Sweden and record the next one? Jonah.
2: Yeah. I'll take credit for that. Um uh, I had become obsessed with a bunch of Swedish bands. Um, and then when I started to delve into those liner notes on the CDs, I noticed that my favorite Soilwork record, The Chain Heart Machine, and then everyone's favorite In Flames record, Playman. And a, this the same guy was recording all these bands. And it was, it was such a strange thing. Because for me over there, like being a fan of these bands, kind of looking up to them, I had this idea of this guy, Frederick Nordstrom as a producer. And I was like, I'm going to hit him up, but there's no way. Like, it's not even possible. We, we didn't even think it was within the realm of possibility because we just had this like pedestal idea of those bands and what that world over there was like. And uh, I, I sent an email to whatever the email address is I could track down through his website. And I somehow managed to send him a digital copy of the record and he listened to it and he wrote back. And this was When Goodbye Means Forever. He had listened to it, and he said, your album sounds really good. You sound a little bit like in flames, but heavier. Yeah. We can record you. And like, that was it. And we we're like, all right, cool. And and we knew that was going to be kind of a, a big dollar figure attached to that. And, and it kind of was for various reasons. It cost us a little bit of money, but that was it. Like we had the green light from him. We, we figured out the the studio timing um, somehow. Cause we were like horrible with organization, especially with like writing songs. We were like always notoriously slow Took us a couple of years to release each, you know, each record or release. So somehow all the stars aligned with writing the next album, which went on to be mm-hmm. Music for the Recently Deceased. Writing these songs that took months and months, and then timing it with this window that we had to go over to Sweden and make a record.
0: What are your memories of that time? Just getting to Sweden, Crafter? Was it? Wasn't it an exciting time?
1: I think at the time we were kind of uh, the there's was a lot of pressure, I think, because at the time, fucking maybe Parkway had done Killing with a Smile, or they were about to, or, or something, or maybe yeah, I can't remember. But they they had a lot of a lot going on. The stuff in America was starting to like real really do well, and there was a lot of pressure for us to like follow up on on a previous CD. I, I feel like for me, it kind of nearly. Led me in a different direction where I kind of lost a lot of focus and a lot of kind of faith in being a band. Maybe maybe it was even at the time. I don't. I, now looking back, I was like, maybe it was depression and stuff like that because I felt like there was this load of pressure for the band to succeed. And when when I kind of look back in Sweden, going there was great and going away, but my head wasn't in the game. And I think I'd already kind of like nearly signed myself out mentally from being in a band and i don't know why because and now looking back i'm like fuck like it was such a it's an opportunity in life that you can only get you only get once or maybe a few times when it comes to music so you had done other stuff but the time like i'm like yeah could have been i could have made more effort i could have sung better parts i could have had better lines but like nowadays when i write songs i go oh, my God, like I could have done this, this, and this, and every big sing-along needs to be a T-shirt design because obviously big lines in songs are what sell a song. But back then I didn't even have that mindset. I was like, I'll get it done and we'll go on tour, which wasn't the right idea.
0: Is Is there a conversation with your bandmates that you recall where put a stamp on it that your time with the band looked to be over?
1: No, there was, at that point, it wasn't even about conversation because we weren't really conversing at all. I, it was a
2: vibe, uh, wasn't
0: it? it As a feeling.
1: Yeah. I, I was kind of in my own little world and then it was like the, the other four. And I don't know whether it was maybe me with a bit of ego or pride just pushing myself away for everyone or maybe... Um, yeah, and I was I was going through a lot at that point, and it doesn't it, it, it the band shouldn't have suffered for my uh, I guess my mindset that like because I, I I would fuck around I wouldn't bother writing songs or I wouldn't bother going to practices or whatever I was here there and everywhere between Adelaide and Melbourne at the time where I probably wasn't home enough to focus on band stuff because. I was too focused on a relationship at the time and whatever else was going on, but we've all gone through those life things and it, you know what like all of those things that happened between us and at the time was a big kind of wake-up call for me to
0: want more in the future It's similar to a relationship sometimes there is simply a feeling that it's about to reach its expiration date
1: yeah well it's that and that's that's exactly it like if if something's run its course and you've already checked out of that course, then you're not going to put in any effort, and you're not going to put in like, and you, you, you're necessarily not going to communicate well. And that was that was kind of how it went.
0: Was there any legal difficulties with restarting and using lyrics? Um, maybe Jonah, an input from
2: you. Um, yes and no. Like it was, it was a messy and a weird time. And just just to rewind back a little bit, like yep. going into that recording. That was big pressure for everyone in the band, you know, and and I think, you know, Crafter mentioned he was going through his his personal stuff and we were all feeling that, but you know, to to a negative detriment on our end. And we we put so much pressure on ourselves on that studio session that we were we were going into that studio, recording with the engineers, you know, kind of nine to five. That's that's like their deal. They they don't go any later than that. But they would give us the keys a lot of nights and just working really hard and You know, Crafter, I think that's where a bit of a divide started to happen and Crafter was kind of hanging at the accommodation that we had and we were in the studio and, you know, to his defense, sometimes there's too many cooks, you know, and there's not, there's not any point in all five of you being there for just slogging it out, you know, tracking guitars or whatever. So, but then to answer your question, like on the legal side, I think, I think that kind of thing wasn't really considered at that point in time with bands at our level like if it would definitely be nowadays but people are just way more aware and like i said a lot of a lot of bands have kind of teams working for them and people to um get advice from things like that so we kind of thought about that crafter had recorded the entire album with us we had a finished album that we had already started sending out to labels shopping around the, the version with his vocals on it and we actually went on a tour uh was the uk tour that we did before after the record was, uh, yeah yeah, was, we
1: did did the uk after and we went to the states after as well
2: so on top of all this we we packed a month-long recording in sweden followed by a two or three week uk tour for the first time ever where it just felt like Oz all over again we were we didn't even have a release out in the uk and we were playing you know these crazy shows that were like Sometimes there'd be five people. Sometimes there'd be a hundred people and we didn't know what to expect. And we didn't really, you know, have hotels or places to stay. There was one or two nights we just drove around in the van because it was freezing. We wanted to keep the heater on. So I was driving around some small UK town at five in the morning, just so the other guys could sleep. So we did that. And then straight into us tour, which was the exact same scenario, you know, small shows, lots of pressure. And I think all of that was just like a, you know, putting it in a boiler for us and and the relationship with Crafter. We made the decision that we were going to part ways with Crafter and I don't really remember the, the details super well, but I, I remember kind of, you know, we were friends that went to high school. We'd known each other for years. Obviously we ended on a, a pretty sour note just because no one wants to part ways like that and get kicked out of a band or have to kick their mate out of a band kind of thing. So I remember kind of doing a bit of a handshake deal where I think we agreed to like, give Crafter some money and he agreed to just let us do our thing and release the album. And when it came to like the re-recording with the new vocalist Ed, we um, kind of kept the lyrics that Kev had contributed quite a few lyrics on that album. Uh, uh, JJ wrote a few parts. I wrote a few little bits here and there. So we kind of kept some skeletons and then just rebuilt the album around that kind of thing.
0: Did you ever listen to it when it came out? crafter within its early I, within its release i had to listen to
1: it because i had to learn the fucking words at one point um, <laughs> uh but yeah i did and i was like because I, I knew it ed was like a person that i was like not mates with, but i knew him i got his band on shows in the uk but at the same time it's like i was like well he's got the voice for this current time like now like you listen you're like those kinds of voices, I, I, I like, I'm not saying mine's fucking great or whatever, but there was like an era where that kind of voice was like what every fucking band kind of wanted or had or whatever, like whether would be Prom Queen of Suicide silences, the job for a cowboys. Like there was this ability to do these death crowds that were just insane. I was like, well, that's crazy. No, I'm not going to do that. But at the, at the time, it's like you're out and I was like, oh, okay, so I'm out of this band that's when like Carpathian like you're gonna sing now and so it was like within the space of like a month or something I was singing in another relatively decent sized band and so it kind of like for me I I didn't really have this much time to go oh woe is me I'm out of a fucking big band because I was kind of back out on tour like straight away Carpathian wasn't a big, big, well, it was a decent size band, but at the time it was like we definitely got fucking bigger fast but it was cool because I could see them doing their thing and I was kind of out on tour with the people I was hanging out with probably the most in Melbourne and stuff like that. So we kind of like coexisted pretty fucking well to the point where Carpathian supported Prom Queen and stuff like that. So at that point, like for that first month, I was like, fuck everyone, everyone could get fucked. Yep like but then after a while I was like, what's the point of being sour? I didn't want didn't want this. It was kind of like one of those things where it's like you you, you don't want something, but then when it's gone, you what want what you can't have. And it kind of was a little bit like that for a bit, but then I was like, Oh, well, we've got to move on and life's gotta move on. And if you didn't have those little things that happen when it be um out of a band or the ups and downs of tour or the fucking fights within a band, you don't learn. And then after all of those problems we had in the UK, the States, whether it be Sweden or whatever, kind of made me realize to appreciate what I had more to appreciate more when I had other bands, which is a good thing.
0: Every publication that had the guts to review songs for the recently deceased, they've all mentioned one thing and it's that it had a top 30 placing in the Aria album charts. Jonah, what kind of feeling did that create in you? Um, it's not a place for heavy it music was a, to be. It's what
2: I'm it's saying. Not, in and, charts. and it and it's a weird one because it almost did it, it almost wasn't really impressive because of that. Like that it wasn't our goal to get in the charts. And that wasn't really like a, a measurement for us. You know what I mean? Like a measurement for us was how many heads were it shows? What awesome tours can we get on in Europe or the UK or the US? Like, how are we doing headlining in Australia now? It was all about like the touring and the performing and that experience for us, I think. So obviously the album is the conduit to being able to do all that. And so it was, it was nice to have positive praise, especially knowing that we went into that album, you know, working really hard and making a big risk, spending a ton of, you know, our own earned money to make a record without the backing of any label, any manager, anything like that we, we did something that most bands would never do even to this day. And that's, you know, make an independent record all by ourselves to then shop it around because we, the Australian metal and hardcore scene didn't have the name for itself then that it does now. And so when we were sending emails out to victory records and century media and whoever else metal blade records, they were like prom who like, you're from Australia. Nothing happens in Australia. Like no one cared. And so I guess there's a part in that, that, you know, it was, it was good to finally have a bit of praise after all the, you know, just all the walls that we're up against constantly.
0: Thanks for joining me here on UNFD, the official podcast. And to everyone out there listening, thank you for tuning in. As usual, this episode was written by Matt Doria and produced by Abby Lukey. I'm going to hop away from the mic, but stay tuned for the second half of my chat with Jonah and Crafter next week, where we'll touch on the craze that erupted when Music for the Recently Deceased came out, and the undying legacy of the album, and how Crafter came back into the fold to give Prom Queen the explosive farewell they truly deserved. In the time being, you can grab a copy of this band's new vinyl pressing for Music for the Recently Deceased from 2400 or unfdstore.com, as well as some powerfully beautiful prom queen merchandise, the pressing itself is dedicated to the memory of the man, the myth, and the legend himself, Sean Kennedy. Sean was, without a doubt in the world, one of the greatest blokes that we here at UNFD ever had the privilege of meeting. It goes without saying that Sean is dearly missed, and his incredible legacy will continue to live on well after all of us are gone. I'll catch you in a few days, but for now, take care, stay safe, and march on.